This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books and Intellectual History, we have Dr. Yunxia Gao, who is a professor of history at Ryerson University in Toronto, Ontario and author of Sporting Gender, Women Athletes and Celebrity Making During China's National Crisis, 1931 to 1945, and more recently, Arise Africa, Roar China, Black and Chinese Citizens of the World in the 20th Century. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gao. Thank you for having me here. Good morning. Good morning. So, so nice to have you here with us today to talk about your latest book, Arise Africa, Roar China. I see this uh, in many ways as both a cultural and intellectual history, because you talk about some of the leading intellectuals in the African-American experience, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, and Langston Hughes, including in this discussion, their wives. First, we will discuss Dr. Gao's biography, research and teaching interests, and some thoughts on intellectual and cultural history, and then get into a more detailed discussion of her book. Dr. Gao, tell us a little bit about your research and uh, teaching interests. Sure. Uh, My research primarily focuses on trans-Pacific cultural and intellectual history uh, throughout the 20th century. As you uh, just mentioned, I wrote two books in this domain, and currently I'm working on two uh, biographies of uh, actress of Chinese descent, modeling a trans-nationalized Asian and Asian American history. And so I teach modern Chinese history and also the global interactions of the East and the West, including including the Mongol Empire. And so also I teach film and history. I would love to teach a course about uh, Asia, Afro interactions, uh, to uh, incorporate all the new cutting edge scholarship in this area. Yes, very exciting research. And I, I even would say your research really goes into, you know, multiple areas of world history, intellectual, cultural history. And it's just a very fascinating um, study, I think, that really It's a book that can be used, I think, in various courses. You know, if we were looking at a course on African-American intellectual and cultural history, I think it's a useful source in that way. Thank you. So so how did you come to study history? Why why history? (laughs) So put a long story short, uh, back in the days when I was a high school student in China, our students were asked to choose uh, two divisions. One is the science one is social science, one was, so, one was science, the other one was uh, social science and humanity. Obviously, I chose uh, social science and humanity. And then after the few passed the challenging national, uh, national uh, exam to interest to college, and their students were allowed to register uh, your choice. And, but just only for reference, not guaranteed they're going to assign you to what you want to study. So my choices were pretty limited, including history, political science, and Chinese la- language and literature. So I followed my passion and chose history because my father was a school teacher who taught history. And so I was granted my wish because history was not a popular major you know, due to perceived limited path to career. So a lot of my classmates, actually, uh, who wished to be like a secretary, government worker, lawyers, they were actually assigned to the major against their pref- preference. So that was a story. That's a that, very interesting story there. So I, you know, I 
think your work, as I said, it moves into s- several different sub subfields, though obviously it has a focus on culture. And I, and, you know, I see intellectual and cultural history as having uh, an obvious overlap. And um, you can kind of see that intersection in your work. Um, let's talk about the parallels between the two and or um, your own definition of intellectual and or cultural history. So for, you know, I think uh, people have different understanding about, you know, what uh, intellectual history or cultural history. And so for me, you know, intellectual history, you know, I understand very broadly, means the study of intellectuals and artists and thoughts and ideas, uh, ideologies over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Intellectuals, their ideas um, and their thoughts over time very much. So in the interaction, intellectual communities, right, that people circulate in. And um, it's definitely a similar definition that I have of this of this term. Um, yeah, obviously, so overlapping with cultural history, as we talk. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Especially if we're talking about artists and their ideas, yeah. we're also talking about, you know, uh, cultural production. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody recently um, on Twitter, I remember hearing or seeing someone raise a question about a student they had who asked about, well, a a poem used as a primary source. And I said, well, why is that such, I mean, you have Langston Hughes in your book and this person is asking a question about whether or not the student should use a poem as a primary source. And to me, as somebody who does intellectual history and that overlaps with cultural history, I said, of course. Of course. I think I saw that. Yeah. Also, I saw some people using like a, uh, you know, I mean, it's a new kind of literature style to, you know, reflect study history. Right. knows, right? <laughs> sure. So discuss with us the premise of your text, Arise Africa, Roar China. Oh, uh, main subject is uh, this book. Uh, you know, if I just use one sentence to describe it, it is about the global interactions between uh, the three most famous 20th century African-Americans, W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, and Lasting Hughes, and their last known Chinese allies, and their names were uh, Liu Liangmo. He was a prolific uh, journalist, talented musician, and Christian activist. Okay. And uh, another one was uh, Sylvia Sulanchen. She was a Sino-Caribbean choreographer and dancer. Actually, she happened to be a a daughter of Eugene Chen, China's uh, Trinidad-born foreign minister in the 1920s. So this is one question I wanted to add, just in turn, obviously you cover it in your book, but tell our audience how these um, individuals were able to meet, how you know, were these black intellectuals able to meet, uh, you know, these various uh, activists and cultural workers of Chinese Chinese descent, that they meet them in their travels in the United States? Okay, so that's, that's a very good question. You know, to put it in another way, why they were attracted to one another? How come they, you know, you know they met and worked together? Yeah, so for the, I mean, the three African-Americans, famed African-American cultural giants, of course, they knew one another. They worked together, as we all, we all know. So for Sulanchen, he, oh, sorry, she, she had a global journey. She lived and traveled all over the places. Okay? And uh, she lived briefly uh, in China following her father there. And after the revolution in 1927, the Northern Expedition, the revolution failed in 1927, and Jiang Kai-shek took over. So his father sent them, you know, his siblings, four of them, to Moscow. And so they lived there for 10 years. And so in Moscow, she met Lasting Hughes. Probably some of our readers, you know, know Lasting Hughes traveled to Moscow in 1932 with other, uh, a bunch of other African-American artists and actors, and supposedly to play, to work, to produce a film called Black and White. Of American racial relations, he was assigned to write a script. The film collapsed 
okay, never made. But in Moscow, that's a huge match selection at the Chinese community there. That propelled him to China. Okay, so by the way, they were lovers when they were in Moscow, Chen and uh, Lasting Hughes. Okay, so that's how they met, how they fell in love. Okay, and so later on, uh, Sulan Chen married an uh, American writer and film historian. His name was uh, Jay Leda. Okay, so she migrated to the US and reconnected with Lasting Hughes and the rest of the world. Address the figures we talk about here. So back to the story about uh, Liu Liangwu. How did Liu Liangwu, you know, add to this circle? So uh, he was from Shanghai. Okay. So he loved the mass singing movement in China, and uh, then he moved, uh, migrated to U.S. in 1941. Stayed here for 10 years. So there, uh, in New York City, he was introduced by uh, the famous Chinese writer and philosopher. Lin Tang and to Paul Robeson. Okay, so they worked together and in the, in the they brought the Messianic movement across Pacific. And so among many domains, Robeson and Liu collaborated, and including they recorded an album together called A Chi Lai, A New Sons of China. And so Chi Lai, Later, under a new name, Munch of Volunteers became the national anthem of People's Republic of China. So what they did was to globalize this song. Okay. So that's one thing. And also they collaborated in many areas to help the war effort. So the mass sending movement was for more war mobilization. And also Liu Liangmo and Robeson worked in many domains to help support China's anti-Japanese war. That's part of the Second World War. So then they worked in a close circle. Everybody knew one another and worked together in many meetings, forums, and they all came together. Wow. It's just, it's just a, I think, an important book that our listeners definitely want to pick up if they haven't already, uh, because I think it just makes so many different interventions that overlap in different realms of, of history. Thank you. Um, Tell us a little bit about the structure of your book, you know, in terms of the, the setup of your book or layout. And then uh, talk to us a little bit about methods, if you will. Mm -hmm. So uh, the book has an introduction, a brief in introduction. Uh, after that, I divided them into five chapters and one chapter for each figure. I call them the citizens of the world. Okay. The first chapter is called... Uh, Arise Africa, face the rising sun, W.E.B. at Surrey Grab Du Bois. So this chapter basically focuses on uh, the Du Bois connection and complex relationship with the pan-Africanism and pan-Asianism uh, under uh, different political turmoils uh, by looking at their writings and comments on Asia and China and examining their trips, multiple trips, uh, to Asia and China from 1936 to 1977. That's chapter one. So chapter two is called uh, Otherwise You Who Refuse to Be Bound Slaves. So that's, that is the opening sentence of the, of the uh, National Anthem of People's Republic of China. Okay. And so again, let me repeat the full uh, title of chapter, chapter two. Otherwise You Who Refuse to Be Bound Slaves, Paul Robeson, The Black King of Sons. So this this chapter rediscovered Robeson's profound affection for China and his enthusiasm for uh, China's resistance against Japan, his long-term friendship with leftist Chinese sojourner artists, including Liu Liangmo, and also uh, the famed king of Beijing Opera, uh, Mei Lanfang, for instance, okay, and uh, his uh, eventual mutual embrace with the Communist Party of China and the People's Republic of China. Okay, so that's the second chapter. Third chapter, uh, Trans-Pacific Mass Singing, Journalism and Christian Activism, Liu Liangmo. So this, this chapter explores Liu Liangmo, how he uh, initiated the mass singing movement uh, across the Pacific, and also how he uh, uh, worked with Chinese American, African American, and white Americans during his 
decade journey in the United States from 1941 to 1949, and through means of speeches, music, and easy-to-access journalism. And finally, this chapter concludes how Liu Liangmo helped to bind Chinese Christianity with new ideology in the People's Republic of China as a high-level cultural official. He returned there in 1949. And so, fourth chapter is called uh, Choreographing Ethnicity, War, and Revolution Around the Globe. Okay. So this chapter unpacks Chen's long journey through the globe, including the Caribbean, Europe, China, the Soviet Union, and the United States as the first modern Chinese Soviet dancer. Okay, that's the fourth chapter. The final chapter, chapter five, Raw China, Lasting Hughes, a poet laureate of the Negro race, and uh, explores the unique role Lasting Hughes played as the first black intellectual celebrity in China in connecting the liberation campaigns of Chinese and African Americans. So those are the five chapters. And then followed by an epilogue, briefly discusses the contemporary understanding of the, those five citizens of the world. So uh, my approach, my method, uh, as you can see, kind of biographical. And meanwhile, more importantly, it's uh, transnational and transdisciplinary. So yes, thank you so much for um, just laying the book out for us in, in terms of structure. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your source material to tell the stories of these individuals, and particularly in terms of your primary sources, which I think is one of the more important, uh, or most important anyway, aspects of your text, is the way you use sources and the sources that you uncovered that may have, I think, haven't really been assessed or utilized by uh, other scholars. So I think that's true, actually. Uh, I'm very proud of my exhaustive research, I would say. Actually, one of the anonymous reviewer of the book manuscript and uh, commented you know, that my exhaustive research would enable this book to transform and redefine Afro-Asian studies. So what I did uh, with my sources, I think this kind of transnational and transcultural history uh, requires a fluent uh, multilingual approach to comprehensively and thoroughly survey the massive yet rarely used sources. First, I checked each figure's archives, published and private, also FBI files, uh, immigration and natural, naturalization service uh, called INS back then. Uh, records in numerous locations, and the manuscript, manuscript holdings uh, for prominent uh, social institutions such as social institutions such as uh, the United China Relief, and important figures such as Pearl Bark, the Nobel uh, Laureate. Okay. And also, I have combed through all the I think I think all relevant uh, English uh, language newspapers and other media's other media published uh, in the United, St United States, uh, in the Great Britain, and also in Shanghai. And also Chinese language periodicals published in, not only in China, but also in Chinatowns China, China in the US uh, from the 1930s to the present. And also uh, I have found numerous monographs and pamphlets on and by my subjects written in or translated translated into Chinese. So those are my sources. Hmm. That's, that's very important. I think some people may not want to hear that, but I think you're absolutely correct when it comes to doing history and getting at the primary sources in the original language, this uh, multilingual, fluent multilingual approach that you uh, mentioned. I, I think if you're looking at Afro-Asian studies and you're looking at sources only from the one side and not being able to read those sources across languages is, um, I think it's important um, point to be made uh, in terms of uh, Afro-Asian studies or diaspora studies more 
broadly. I think that's just an important point. Maybe for any students listening to the, the show today in training, in their own training and uh, the PhD level and thinking about, you know, Afro-Asian studies. Uh, let's turn to how your work um, engages the work of scholars writing, for instance, about Black internationalism and, um, you know, in an international or global framework. Um, how do you see your work engaging the work of other scholars? So that's a good question. Also, I think related to what we have discussed about sources. Okay. So uh, for me, I think my book, you know, regarding the global transnational framework of Black internationalism, directly relevant is about, uh, you know, is other scholarship on the interaction, interactions between the Black diaspora and Asia. There are excellent work, excellent scholarship in this domain. But so far, I think mostly just uh, focused on how uh, African Americans uh, used, you know, borrowed Chinese ideas and ideologies. And I'll sometimes even just briefly mention such context between uh, the black, black diaspora in China or Asia existed. I think, you know, uh, they are good work, but limited by access of source. So barely used Chinese language sources. Yeah, so therefore, I think, uh, you know, I built on this scholarship, expanded, you know, the, by integrating, uh, I mean, the both perspectives, right? The sources allow us to look at, you know, perspectives from different groups and different domains, okay? And so uh, so I think uh, my book expanded the ex- existing scholarship by examining how these famous three African-Americans they were uh, started and uh, perceived and critiqued among the Chinese. Okay. And also, I introduced Liu, Liu Liangmo, and Sun Chen as brand new but very important subjects in this discourse. Okay. And so, so far, directly comparative works about these three African American cultural, cultural giants are rare. And discussions of individual Afro-Chinese relationships are even harder to find. Okay. So, but my book and, and you know, explores new directions, it opens new directions by examining the intertwined lives of these individuals, usually perceived as occupying non-overlapping domains. And so how these citizens of the world actually interact with one another in very different ways. And sometimes they collaborating and they collaborated and contributed to historic uh, partnerships. And other times they fell in and out of love. Okay. So that's how I engaged and expanded existing scholarship in this domain. Can you talk a little bit since we raised the question of sources? Yeah. And the Chinese language sources in particular, that's a great point as well. The fact that, you know, the Chinese are um, commenting on, right, their thoughts about these African-American intellectuals and culture workers, that's important to know, right? So if you don't have that language skill, right, um, there's going to be, you know, a gap in your knowledge. So... Uh, how were African-American intellectuals such as Du Bois, Robeson, and Hughes perceived by the Chinese according to these uh, uh, Chinese language okay. you know, sources in particular? Yeah, that's a very good question, but it's a very large question. Okay, it could cover many. Yeah, sure. No, I, but I try to ask briefly. I, try to, I will try to answer briefly. Okay. So basically, in you know, Chinese perceptions of those intellectual joints sifted and evolved uh, over time, within the dynamic trans-Pacific political and ideological landscapes, okay. just so you know, let me examine them, you know, one by one, very briefly. Uh, first, for W. E. B. Du Bois, and when, in the nineteen thirties, back back then, and viewing imperial, imperial Japan as the hope of the darker world, and so he dismissed. Chinese nationalists, the official government under Chiang Kai-shek, you know, he used the term called 
uh, Asian occult terms. And everybody knows what that means. Okay. So therefore, in return, and Chinese, despite the fact they understood as a giant stature of, you know, the giant intellectual stature of W.E.B. Du Bois, but they were alienated from him and even suspected him, you know, some, someone even questioned him whether you are a Japanese agent after all. Okay. So that was back then. And then Du Bois shifted his uh, favorable gaze uh, from Japan to the People's Republic of China as a new pillar of the colored world, okay, then the People's Republic of China treated him as an icon and crucial to China's new aspiration uh, to the leadership, leadership of the Third World. So therefore, he and his wife began to receive uh, uncomparable state hospitality. And so how they were treated, as you can learn from my book, they frequently rubbed shoulders with China's top leadership. As you can tell from the cover, he, he was talking with Mao, right? The boy was talking with Mao and also other leaders, okay? And also, the boy and his wife were the first Westerners uh, to appear on the Tiananmen Square podium during the National Day Parade, okay? They frequently occupied the front page of the state uh, media, like the, the Communist Party of China's uh, mouthpiece, uh, People's Daily. Okay. His birthdays were celebrated as state events. Okay. Even there were documentary made about he and his wife there with it. So you can imagine how important uh, they were. Okay. So that's the boy. For Paul Robeson, a little bit different story. And so back in Republican China, that is to say, you know, from 1911 to 1949, that's uh, that, that period called Republican China. And uh, especially in the 1920s and 30s, uh, Paul Robeson was the most visible, although he never visited China, he was the most visible uh, black uh, celebrity back then. Why? because the contemporary media, Chinese media, rarely covered uh, black celebrities, but they made an exception for him, obviously, because of his uh, global fame. However, his popular singing and acting fell into the category of entertainers, okay, where the stereotypical, uh, quote-unquote, primitive uh, African the image were reinforced and celebrated. Okay. Then, in the People's Republic of China, and yeah, so he was uh, actually immediately after the establishment of the People's Republic of China, Paul Robeson was enshrined as a reliable friend of China, fearless and reliable friend of China. Okay. And he was promoted as a heroic revolutionary model to inspire socialist citizens of China. He was celebrated as the Black King of Songs uh, for the, not only for Chinese, for the oppressed masses across the world uh, who embodied actually the perfect marriage between art and politics. Okay, so that's the transition of his standards in China. And for Lasting Hughes, actually, he, was, he established the status as a revolutionary among the Chinese, or with the Chinese, like before W.E.B. Du Bois, before Paul Robeson. And during his epic journey and trip to Shanghai in 1933, he was immediately celebrated as the first established uh, revolutionary black writer by the leftist cultural circle in Shanghai, okay? And they celebrated and allowed how he screamed and struggled for all the oppressed races across the world. So his visit actually triggered a long-going interest in his work and in general black literature in China, okay? And so most tellingly, since 2009, and his, one of his classical, uh, classical poem, and everybody knows uh, Black, Black speaks, uh, Negro speaks of railway, 
Okay. And as a Chinese translation, as a Minister of Education of China, he included the translation of this poem in the uh, Chinese language and liter literature textbook and mandated for ninth graders across the nation. Okay, that is to say, everybody go everybody uh, goes through ninth grader, you have to read this piece. Okay. And what's the purpose to include this piece? Yeah, so that the Chinese youth could learn about the King Dead Code history of the Black Race. As you can imagine until now, and I think he's enjoyed enormous readership among Chinese. So I think that's a brief story about how they were perceived by Chinese. Right. Mm -hmm. No, and that speaks again to the, the value of the um, Chinese language uh, sources and also FBI sources, as you mentioned, you know, looking at their travels and how they get documented by the government, which I think anyone working in uh, Black internationalism, studies of Black internationalism, they're probably mostly relying on you know, government sources, FBI sources, if they don't have the the secondary language skills, which is you're you're really mapping how this, you know, ultimately is not going to give you a complete or full picture of how these individuals were perceived in China. So I think that's a groundbreaking uh, achievement of your work. Mm -hmm. Talking about FBI uh, thing, uh, files, actually, you know, all the, you know, we talk about citizens of the world, right? As, as if, you know, they were moving freely across the globe. Yes, they, they indeed tra they traveled, and tra travels were important to them, and, but, you know, not easy, okay? They were followed by the FBI, everybody, every subject in my book, and they had a huge pile of FBI files huge trail following them, okay? And I think it's something new uh, in my work to see how FBI actually was working with other government agency, like in China, and, you know, also connected with Japan, with Japanese government. So it's a global network. Right. So though your book focuses on um, Du Bois, Robeson, and Hughes, you also discuss uh, Black women, and such as uh, Islana Good Robeson and Shirley Graham Du Bois, um, what role do they play in this story, in this narrative? Um, tell us a little bit more about them in particular. Mm -hmm. So that's a very good question. So, you know, all these subjects, the male subjects, subjects I talk about, they were not alone. Uh, their spouses and romantic partners played a very important role in their ideologies and their careers, of course, and particularly in their interactions in quarters with China and Chinese. Okay. And so for instance, you know, here I fully developed the story in this book about uh, Sulan Chen. And for, for, for uh, I mean, during their brief uh, romantic encounter, actually she helped to fan Lasting uh, Hughes' interest in China. And for instance, uh, Lasting Hughes recorded how he spent memorable, memorable time in the cozy room of Sun Chen in Moscow. And their conversations frequently was about Chinese revolution, about the Chen family, especially about Sun Chen's father, Eugene Chen, the foreign, former foreign minister. Okay. And so uh, that, that's how she helped him to connect with China, the whole network. Okay. So recording is like a uh, Robeson, and certainly Grant Du Bois, and so I, I included part of the story here, but I think their stories uh, warranty independent scholarship, I mean, scholarship independent from uh, this book project. And so didn't, I don't have enough room to include all their stories here. So I have been accumulating actually uh, enough materials about them, their interactions with China and Chinese, so I'm planning a new project. Hopefully this new project would open new ground, you know, uh, by adding, you know, the narratives about interactions between African-American women in China, particularly Chinese women. So how did these women push their husbands? At one point you use this phrase, mm -hmm. uh, the women push their husbands into an embrace of Chinese communism. And... Um, 
In what ways did somebody like a Shirley Graham Du Bois uh, do this? Okay, uh, so that's a good question. Uh, all these uh, women, actually, you know, you may be surprised, they were more radical than their husbands. Okay, yeah, so go back a little bit. You know, although Solange obviously was not the wife of Leslie Hughes, but you know, go back to their brief uh, encoder, uh, aromatic encoder uh, in Moscow. Actually, Solange helped, not only helped him to develop interest in China, also helped him to connect with the uh, international communist uh, network and mm-hmm. uh, like connect with him, him with Madame Sun Yat-sen, the leftist uh, sister of uh, the China's contemporary first lady, Madame Jiang Kai-shek, and also uh, with other figures, okay, and propelled him to Shanghai, the left, leftist cultural circle. So that's about uh, Sivan Chen and Lasting Hughes. And for Isleta Robeson, okay. And so we, as I mentioned, Robeson never traveled to China. And, but immediately after the founding of the People's Republic of China. And so who traveled there? And Robeson's wife, okay. And he appeared in the People's Republic of China in Beijing and as the first group of foreigners ever stepped there okay so remember at that point and yeah, so the rest of the world was not certain about how to res- respond uh, to the new regime to the new china okay so she traveled there to affirm uh, the robustness i mean the couple's uh, alliances with the new regime with the people's republic of china okay so after they returned they toured the u.s and to loud to loud the achievements of the, the People's Republic of China. That reform, how the nation looked uh, prosperous, strong, uh, harmonious, and uh, egalitarian. Okay. So, and this backed and reinforced Robinson's romantic uh, image and romantic, romantic perception about the People's Republic of China. Okay. That that is between Isleta Robinson and Paul Robinson. Okay. And so similarly, and when W.E.B. Du Bois started to embrace uh, the com- embrace communist China, and his wife, Sally Graham, offered strong support. Actually. And so actually, since uh, Graham uh, Du Bois entered his life, and Du Bois' interest in uh, Soviet Union and in communist China began to be translated, his, translated into renewed interest of visiting to socialism, okay? And so what Graham Du Bois did was to open up contacts and connections and with China, overseas Chinese, and also with China, and to help lead to a better reception in China for the couple in the future. And so remember, the Chinese were not certain about Du Bois because of his, you know, position about Japan before, okay? And during the transition from uh, the Republican China to the People's Republic of China around 1949. But, but at that point, and yeah, so they knew about it, I, I think they understood, uh, understood Graham Du Bois' uh, writings and also his politics. Okay. And so, for instance, you know, uh, Graham Du Bois' uh, biographies of famous African Americans, including Paul Robeson and Fred, Fred, Frederick Douglass. And George uh, Washington Carver were all translated into Chinese between 1949 and 1950. Okay, and also Chinese, uh, I mean the People's Daily, for instance, reported how he, how, sorry, how uh, Sirley Graham and uh, Isleta Robinson, and they they tore down Taiwan's flag in the All Africa uh, Conference in Ghana in 1958 to help help. Down the two uh, China conspiracy conspiracy launched by the U.S. government. So I'm giving this example to show you how, you know, in the early days of the People's Republic of China, and they were watching, appreciating, understanding uh, Sirleaf Graham Du Bois. Okay, and so after you would note after Sirleaf Graham entered Du Bois' life uh, in the late 40s, early 1950s, and the Chinese media began to highlight the favorable position of W.E.B. Du Bois. So, that's my answer. 
So, no, very good, very comprehensive. Um, you used the phrase, um, Shirley Graham Du Bois was a major interpreter um, of her husband's vision of China. What, can you tell us a little bit more about that, a little expand? Okay, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I think I've already touched, but here, you know, I expand a little bit more, maybe best to use the example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you touched. You definitely touched on it. Yeah. So best example, I think, be told, you know, regarding the dynamics between the couple, and regarding their interactions with China, I think it could be best in, uh, illustrated by the gender dynamic, or ge the gender dimension in their perceived, uh, how to say, perceived uh, egalitarian society, egalitarian society in China, and so they highlighted this gender dynamic. Why? How? And as you can read from the book and learn from the sources, Graham Du Bois was particularly impressed by the elevated standards of Chinese women under the so-called state feminism. Okay, yeah. So therefore, you know, he, her view obviously influenced her husband. You know, when they were there, you could note Du Bois began to pay more attention to Chinese women as well. Okay, so I'm arguing, you know. Yeah, his wife influenced and guided him to see, you know, the new gender relations, the new standards, standards of the women in the new China. Okay. And so therefore, the boy, you know, influenced by his wife and began to uh, view China. Before, remember, he talked about, you know, this weak nation. Japan was much better. Uh, it's the, you know, the weak nation should accept Japan's tough love and to help expel white colonialism from Asia. And now he began to view China as strong, as uh, harmonious, and as the nation was occupied, was lived by robust, strong men and women. Okay. So Du Bois observed eventually, you know, I think this is pretty Italian. He, he said, the women of China are becoming free. They wear pets so that they can walk, climb, and dig. And climate dig they do. They are not dressed simply for sex indulgence or beauty praise. They occupy positions from uh, ministers of state to locomotive engineers, lawyers, doctors, clerks, and liberals. Okay. And so confirming this and you know, reinforcing this. And his wife often in writings, in speeches, talked about, emphasized, insisted and how Chinese women were more liberated than their black and white sisters. Mm. Now, given your access to the Chinese language sources, how <laughs> how accurate was her uh, her view, do you think? I don't know if that's a fair question, but... <laughs> that's a good question, actually. So here is the visit, right? Perception. But, you know, I think your, your question is about reality, Right. So for instance, a lot of people criticize criticizing Du Bois, or even Isabella Robinson earlier, Du Bois back at later visited China. A kind of you know a perfect picture, right? People happy and prosperous, harmonious. It's a good society. But you know, you know, keep in mind during their visit in 1959, China was going through a great leap forward. The disasters great leap forward, famine, etc. And they didn't really say that, or they didn't report that. Okay. Regarding women's status, you know, the state of feminism, it did some improvement, uh, but you know, not as perfect as, of course, they insist, insisted, they described. Good. Thank you. Well, let's get back to Langston Hughes. It's kind of coming to our final questions here. Mm -hmm. And um, I like the way you describe uh, Langston Hughes quote, as the first black intellectual mm -hmm. celebrity in China. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more, because Americans are so obsessed with celebrity. Okay. So I'm wondering what the, the Chinese perception of celebrity, um, you know, <laughs> what does that mean in a Chinese context? Okay. So uh, I think, you know, uh, that's a very good question. I like to talk about Lester Hughes. I think his story there was fascinating. Okay. So let me first, you know, Talk about why I talk. I mentioned you know Paul Robeson was a celebrity, right? I, I mentioned he was the most visible, right, as an entertainer back then before 1949, okay, the communist victory. And so for Lester Hughes, how he appeared there, you know, he's a radar, you know, became you know Chinese became fascinated about him, and since then, 
And let me give a little bit of detail about his appearance, okay? And I like this detail, details. Uh, in the steamy July of 1933, and last thing he was soldiered from uh, Moscow. Remember, he met uh, met a Slanchun there uh, to incredible, that's the word he used, incredible Shanghai, and uh, where Japan. Uh, Therefore, he actually became the first, as we mentioned many times, black intellectual celebrity to step on Chinese soil. Okay. And so before him, why he was the first uh, intellectual celebrity? Of course, celebrity means the media covered him. You know, his works were translated. He was known and covered, reported uh, on leftist media and also mainstream media. Okay. And so did I mean he was the first black person appeared in Shanghai? Of course not. Okay, but who were before him? So he recorded this uh, of his first impression of Shanghai in his uh, autobiography. I want, I wonder, as I wonder. Okay, uh, he said this. I didn't know so in the city means in Shanghai, but hardly had I climbed into a rickshaw, then I saw riding in another along the board. Um, a Negro who looked exactly like a Harlemite. I stood up in my rickshaw and yelled, Hi, man. He stood up in his rickshaw and yelled, What are you saying? And we passed each other in the crowded street, and I never saw him again. Okay, so there were black uh, sojourners population living in Shanghai. Okay. So based on our research sources, uh, who, were the, who, who were they before Hughes were there? And yes, mainly uh, jazz musicians. Okay, so they staffed the nightclubs in China's semi-colonial treaty ports uh, to entertain foreigners and local Chinese. Okay, and so that's what you know Chinese knew about uh, blacks musicians. Okay, and so another group actually uh, dominated the presence and the images. Even they were not physically there, but in the mind, in local people's mind, were athletes. Why athletes? And because back then, China was humiliated as uh, with the nickname "sick man of Asia," right? So uh, they were alarmed by the rise of nationalism and Japan's imperial, imperial ambition. So, therefore, under that concept, as you could understand. And China's performance, their athletes' performance, you know, we have an Olympic ongoing right now, you know, what it could be like, you know, the competition among nations, you know. Their uh, Chinese, Chinese athletes were defeated badly continuously in the 1932 and uh, 1936 Olympics. Okay. And so under this context, and Chinese media began to cite and loud and applaud uh, the so-called, quote-unquote, natural uh, physical prowess of uh, black athletes, including the boxer, Joe Lewis, and also, of course, the track and field star, uh, Jesse Owens. Why they reported, covered those athletes? Uh, because they believed they could reflect uh, the, I mean, reflect the power and threats for the colored people together. So that I'm what I'm saying so far is up up to the point where Leslie Hughes appeared on Chinese soil, and all Chinese people knew about about black people were musicians and athletes. So remember, and so those two personas, musical and athletic personas, were were closely connected to the stereotypical. Uh, African primitivism. Nothing else you can do but play music and do do athletic stuff. Okay, so under this context, you you know the meaning of letting lasting Hughes appears and covered by media as a slap as a celebrity. What kind of celebrity? And using his brain, an intellectual, a writer. So therefore, I argue his appearance in Shanghai, in China, began to help to revolutionize the image of blacks over there by found grounding his intellectual capacity uh, in, as opposed to, as I mentioned, you know, the other athletic and musical personas. 
Right. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Well, we come to the end of our conversation, but I want to ask you one more question Mm -hmm. in regards to your, um, your uh, future research or current research. What what do you have next in terms of books? <laughs> Too many. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> A lot of ideas come out of this alone. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so far, right now, I'm finishing a biography. I'm actually doing two biographies I'm working on. One is uh, pretty close to, fin- to finish. And so this is a, his, this is a biography. Her name uh, was Su Yang. Okay. She was born in Hawaii. And she uh, played uh, in many Hollywood films, uh, but as a supporting uh, actress, she played, for instance, in Good Earth. So that's the most famous one. And most importantly, I mastered, I, I would show in this book about transnational history still, right? Transnational, transpacific. And she had connection with the intellectual network, you know, different from other uh, actresses. Yeah, actually, um, she got a master degree. Yeah, she, she got a, a bachelor degree from the University of Hawaii. And then she got a, a master degree uh, at the Uni- University of Columbia. Started with John Dewey. Okay? And she, she, she appeared in Broadway, etc. She connected with the Trans-Pacific Intellectual Network from Nankai University, Tsinghua University, and also China Institute uh, in New York City. And also she interpreted with for Milan from the King of Beijing Opera during her tour uh, in the US in 1930. So basically I'm trying to show, you know, the transnational network how she entered and also highly educated. That's kind of on euro for Chinese, for women, etc. How that, you know, I mean, altered it, altered and changed the, the image and dynamics. So that's one of the biography. Another is called Wang Ying. She was from China, and she soldiered to U.S. Uh, during the Second World War II as Liu Moore, and she worked with Paul Robeson as well. So it seems like this book alone has given you so many new avenues to look at uh, transnational history, transcultural history. Yeah. After that, maybe and, I started work on uh, <laughs> what do we talk about uh, about a Sir Graham Du Bois and uh, Isleta Robeson and their interactions with China. In Chinese, actually, I found too many materials to be just included in this book as enough right. actually, for a second project. Maybe that's a project after. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and uh, discussing your important book, Arise Africa, Roar China. Thank you so much for ha- having me here. I hope the listeners, the reader, would enjoy my book. Thank you. I'm sure they will. Thank you. <laughs>